Hello, everyone. Hello, 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 hello. It is good fit to be together this morning. Excited to be here. I am wearing my Hawaiian shirt because we were in Durban last week for family's 40th, and I didn't get to do Hawaiian Sunday. I hear you pulled it off there, Collie, so thanks for that. Um, but good to be together. Um, if you were here two Wednesdays ago, we met right here, and we, we um, had Luke chat to us about God and homosexuality. So remember, we, we're talking about God and sexuality over four weeks, but there's six sessions, and two of those fall on a Wednesday night. So if you missed that talk, I can't in, um, encourage you enough to go and find it, uh, look on the website, and download it. It was exceptional. This Wednesday, we are gathering again here to talk about God and the trans community, or God and transsexuality, which is uh, such a pivotal thing for us to be able to talk about. So I wanna, with all my heart, encourage you, join us here Wednesday night, 7.30. You're all invited. Bring your friends. If your life group leader, for some reason, isn't here, insist that they invite your whole life group to come here and join us. I mean, this is a family Echo. This is a family moment. And uh, we really want to encourage as many of you as possible to gather together so that we can uh, really engage in these uh, topics so well. So 7.30, Wednesday night, be here. You know, when I, I, Luke and I were first chatting about this series and we decided who's going to do what topic. And, I, and so then I was like, hey, what, you know, what article could I read? What book do you recommend? Anything I could read or, you know, article, whatever. So he sends me one or two ideas and then it's only Luke can. He sends you this little giggly, um, you might not know Luke like that, but he's got this little giggly mischievous voice note. And he says, hey, Donnie, the best thing you can do to prep for today is get really comfortable saying masturbation in front of a whole lot of people. <laughs> I haven't taken him up on the offer. I've tried as much as I can to save it all for today. But it won't be too much. But if you're sitting next to your folks, I mean, hey, what can you do? You're locked in. Um, so I want to get straight into it because there's so much I want to get through today. We, we are preaching a little longer than normal during this uh, series just because there's, there's so much to say. And we want to give each of these topics, um, you know, it's due. And so... We're gonna go a little bit longer than normal. Uh, I wanna give credit to John Tyson, who's helped shape so much of this message and this series. So I just wanna thank him and his church for that. Um, if you were here last week, Derek did a fantastic job of speaking about God and singleness. Um, two weeks ago, Luke kicked off the series speaking to us about the fact that in, as Christ followers, we live between two stories. We live between the story of culture around our sexuality and God's story. And we're caught in the middle and we're pulled one way or the other. And he landed his talk with this, this call to repentance, which basically means a call to have a change of heart and a change of mind around the story that we're embracing with our lives. And of course, the appeal was for us to embrace God's story. If you missed that talk, I highly recommend again that you go and find it. These all build on each other, and in many ways, this is a follow-on from Luke's message. You know, truth be told, if I'm honest, we're probably in great danger as a church of being more aligned with culture in our sexuality than God, if we looked at our lives. We're more aligned with culture than with God when it comes to sexuality. I think... Partly because we're so immersed in culture and the messaging and that it's just normal. There's a normal way in culture to think about sex and sexuality and we take that in, we absorb it, we adopt it sometimes without even thinking about it. It's just normal. But the other reason I think why we might be more reflective of culture is because I don't think, you know, as pastors, as a local church, we've done enough to really help and empower you around this topic of sexuality. So it's exciting that we get to do that. And I think especially of our high schoolers, you know, young adults who are living in such a contested space right now around sexuality. And it's such a joy to be able to, to speak about this and hopefully inspire us. You know, traditionally the church goes into morality mode. You know, do this, don't do that. The boundaries, honestly, it's not very compelling. I think our, our, you know, our kids, our teenagers, our young adults, they're intelligent. You know, they want to know why, what's the reasoning, what's the big idea behind, why are you telling me what I can and can't do? 
And if we don't go into morality mode, we go into taboo mode, don't talk about it, put it under a rock, sweep it under the rug. You know, we're not gonna go there, just squash that thing. It's definitely not gonna help, that approach. Because our sexual drives are so powerful in a sexualized culture, we can't sweep them under the rug. We need a better way. What we need is a biblically compelling and a personally attractive view of sexuality that is beautiful and empowering for our lives as Christ followers. I wanna try to do that this morning. I wanna try uh, paint a picture of sexuality that's biblically compelling and personally attractive that gives us a, a positive high view of sexuality. So I wanna do it by asking a question, a question that Christ followers should be asking themselves. Who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to sexuality? Who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to sexuality? And as, as Lou said, we're talking about how our sex forms us. Now even the idea that sex can form you or that sex can impact your personhood is something that culture wouldn't be comfortable with, wouldn't even agree with. Culture would have you believe that sex is simply body on body. It's atoms, it's cell, it's mass. That's it, no big deal. It's got nothing to do with who you really are or who you're really becoming. It's, it's outside of yourself. Well, let's get into it. If you're visiting us today, let me just say welcome. You, you might be from a, a different church. Uh, hopefully, you might have come because you know what we're speaking about. If you didn't, surprise. Um, it's not every day the church talks about this, but we need to. Um, but, you know, but it's good for you to know, obviously you're in a church, I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to shepherd Christ followers into a, a fuller understanding of what we believe God's word teaches around sexuality. Now, I know that culture and the scriptures don't often see eye to eye. Well, actually, <laughs> rarely often, if ever, see eye to eye on sexuality right now. But my hope is that you see that, that the Bible and God has a very high view of sex and a very high view of the body that, that you see is empowering and beautiful. But glad you're here, and I hope you have a good time with us. I wanna open our Bibles. We're gonna go to Matthew, follower of Jesus. He records an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 27. Here, Jesus touches on sexuality. He says, you have heard that it was said, this is Matthew 5, 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, it's safe to say Jesus isn't messing around when it comes to sexuality. This is a radical message. It's in stark contrast to culture that says, hey, it's not a big deal. You know, sex, sexuality, it's not a big deal. Well, clearly for Jesus, he says it differently. It is a big deal. This really matters to him, and so it matters to us. My first exposure to pornography was uh, on a, on a, when I was a scout on a Friday night. I said to John, I should have been at youth. But uh, it was this highly complex and covert operation that this guy snuck this magazine into scouts. We had to be very strategic. You know, most of us play the game or do the activity, tie a knot while a small crew of us goes and gathers around this magazine. I remember the power of those pictures on my life to produce this excitement and desire within me. I mean, it was powerful. We, I mean, we all knew it was wrong, but it was exciting. I wasn't just like this little kid anymore that had an abstract idea around sex. I had unknowingly graduated into, this, into, this, into far stronger sexual urges to wanna know and wanna see and wanna experience more of what I had just seen in this magazine. But it wasn't only the, the power of that moment in my life, but also for us as a group. It's amazing how we were bonded together as this group of young guys that had now shared this experience together. See, the truth is there is a lot of power in sexuality to radically impact and shape our lives. 
I think that's why Jesus uses such strong language when it comes to sexuality. That's why the followers of Jesus, the guys who helped write the scriptures like Paul, they use strong language when talking about sex because they understand how powerful it is in shaping who we're becoming as people, as Christ followers. So here's Paul. He's writing to a church in Corinth. It's a coastal city like Greater Cape Town, Cosmopolitan. He writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own? You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. I mean, we could spend weeks unpacking this text alone. I wanna focus in on verse 18. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Our sexuality is so powerful that sexual sin has a category of its own if you're gonna talk about sin. So we've all been impacted by sin. Every human has been impacted by sin. We've, we've been distorted in the way that we reflect God in our relationships, in the way that we, we see ourselves, in the way that we're, we're not who God intended and created us to be and, and through salvation that's being restored. But our distorted sexuality has a way of harming us that's different to the way other sin impacts us. It's got this disproportionate impact on who we're becoming. You know, all other sin is outside your body, but who sins sexually sins against their own body. And the Bible wants us to understand that we are embodied people, that our bodies and who we are and our soul and our mind are intrinsically linked in ways that cannot be separated. So Philip Yancey says it like this. Sex outside of God's vision this is powerful, has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost everything else in its path. We're gonna see that our sexuality is either forming us into the image of Christ or deforming us into something else. So let me just say, I mean, in a gathering like this, we all come with different stories, different backgrounds, uh, different experience. And today, it's not about producing guilt or shame. It's not what we're trying to do. It's not about condemnation. It's not about pointing fingers. What we're doing is we wanna ask the question, regardless of our sexual past, how do we bring our sexuality to Jesus and allow him to transform and form us into who he created us to be so that we can experience our sexuality the way God designed it to flourish. Truth is, we wanna bring our whole selves, even our aroused selves, to Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What is your vision for sexual formation? Ever thought about that? What is your vision for how you want your sexuality to be worked out? I mean, as a parent, have you ever thought about this for your kids as you raise your kids? What is the vision for their sexual formation that you have? In what way are you training them, teaching them, discipling them to see and view their own sexuality? It's a very important question. Maybe you live with a fear of sexual desire. You know, you don't talk about it, sexual desire is bad, avoid it at all costs until you get married, then go wild. Don't hold hands, don't look at someone sideways, if you know you catch that glint in their eyes, it's over. I mean, I think this has unhelpfully been a bit of the way the church goes on this. 
where, where we kind of, you know, the fear of sexual desire or morality plus enough willpower will bring holiness in people. You're like, if we give people, not just speaking about kids or teens, I'm speaking about all of us, if we put enough boundaries and rules in place and then, and then create enough fear that if we don't keep up, we're gonna disappoint ourselves and let God down, if we put enough of that fear in people that it's gonna produce this holy life that we wanna see. Well, how's that been working out for us? Well, for one thing, I think it gives us a skewed view of sexuality. Like Philip Yancey says again, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. But secondly, it just simply doesn't work. Surveys reveal that there is a very, very little difference in premarital intercourse and cohabitation between those who go to church regularly and those who don't. In other words, the church is very, very reflective of culture. So there's a Christian, Christian mingle, it's a dating app in the States, they did a survey. 61% of self-identified Christian singles said they were ha- willing to have cons- casual sex without being in love. 23% say, no, at least I'd have to be in love. Only 11% they said they were willing to wait to have sex until they were married. And let me tell you, my experience as a pastor, this rings true. This is true. I used to have a friend, I used to manage a boxing gym back in the day, and uh, he was one of the owners. He used to say to me, you Christians love extreme sports. You guys are always living out on the edge. You know, you, you love to like cuddle up next to a woman or sleep next to her or watch a movie on a bed together and try your best not to sleep together. He says, it's crazy. It's crazy, he said. And then when you do sleep together, you're like, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> He's right. Moral standards plus willpower equals failure. We need, we need to do better. You could let the pendulum swing the other side where you say, don't fear them, just follow your sexual desires. In this vision, the, the equation is desire plus consent is gonna bring freedom. I mean, this is our culture's predominant uh, view of sexuality, vision for sexuality. If you want it and the other person is willing, go for it. I mean, this is your right. This is your highest expression of being human. This is what it means to be free. This is what it means to be whole, is to just express what you're feeling inside of you. Sex, it's about pleasure and gratification, that's it. It's got nothing to do with marriage, commitment, family. There's no space for morality. There's no space for ethical distinctions in our sex-positive culture. Don't let the church or God diminish your freedom as a person. Sex, it's, it's like an appetite like any other. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. If someone's available and consenting, you have sex. No big deal. Besides, if you're aroused and there's no one around or no one willing, you've always got porn and masturbation. But 50, 60 years into this experiment, we've got to ask ourselves, how's it going? You know, is this freedom and flourishing really happening? And I think we have to be honest to say that actually this vision for sexuality is creating a lot of difficulties for us. It's a lot more uh, complex and creating a lot more difficulties than maybe culture's willing to recognize. As much as people pretend it's fun, people are craving intimacy, which is very hard to get in a hookup culture. If you don't know what a hookup culture is, if you're on the, on the older side, someone said to me the other day, they said to someone, hey, we should hook up sometime. It means something very different for a bit younger. I mean, this is, this is sleeping together, hooking up. Miley Cyrus, she says this, effing is easy. You can find someone to eff in five seconds. We wanna find someone who we can talk to and be ourselves with. That's fairly slim pickings. Donna Freitas, a researcher on campuses in the States. Students have to work hard to disassociate their feelings from their sexual encounters. They find their meaningless sexual encounters disappointing. They feel hurt and lonely. I don't know if you know this, but Britain has appointed a loneliness minister to government, in part because of the breakdown of relationships, you know, the high level of divorces, as well as the, the lack of intimacy the lack of the ability to build meaningful relationships with people and the opposite sex, that it's become 
a crisis. I wanna suggest that, that this idea of just desire plus consent actually is bringing disillusionment. A low view of sex, a low view of sexuality is bringing a proportionately low sense of intimacy, of love, of acceptance. What hookup culture is producing is isolated, alienated adults who come together temporarily to, you know, to release physiological needs, but then by repeatedly breaking up or never bringing any in, uh, emotion or intimacy into that connection in the first place, what's happening is that people are learning, they're unlearning how to build strong, resilient bonds with other people the kind of bonds that you need for long-term relationships in marriage and in family. It turns out sexuality is more than an appetite. It's got an impact on who we're becoming. It's got an impact on our ability to be the kind of people we were created to be, who God desires us to be. So, so if the answer isn't fear of sexual, uh, sexual appetites and desires or follow them, what is the answer? And I want to ask, does Jesus have a vision for our sexuality? And he does, and, and Jesus wants to form our sexuality. It's called sexual formation. You know, Jesus looks beyond what's on the surface of so many of these conversations, and again, he asks that question, who are you becoming based on why and what you are doing with your sexuality? I mean, we must ask the question, who am I becoming by the way, I'm using and giving myself to sexuality. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Actually, this is radically shaping who you're becoming. Sexuality is given to us by God as a tremendous, incredibly powerful force in our, both our personal and our communal formation. We're either being formed or disformed. We need to bring our sexuality to God afresh. So let's read Paul again. He's writing to Christ followers, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse three. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be increasingly more like Christ, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now remember, the Bible understands the power of sexuality, of sex to form us. And so many of the prohibitions you read about, like the one we've just read, are not there to stifle our fun, but to save us from being deformed further and further away from the person and the community and the people that God has created us to be. Actually, the message of the Bible is that your sexuality is something of great worth and deserves to be protected, that it's good that it's powerful, but it's also fragile. So you have gotta look after it. You have gotta care for it. The Bible isn't anti-sex, the Bible is pro-body. We have to learn how to control and submit to the spirit in our sexuality. So it's all good to hear what I'm saying, but how? How do we live this out? How do we, how do we get a fresh vision for our sexuality? Well, I wanna suggest four biblical pillars now we need to build into our lives to, to start to uh, renew our sexuality. Here's the first pillar. We need to understand that our sexuality is designed to remind us of the true story that we actually long for. So sex is a signpost pointing us to something greater, pointing us to who we were created to be. So remember Adam and Eve in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. In our cultural moments, we might get naked, but we are still fighting shame. We might be able to take our clothes off, but we're hiding our emotional vulnerabilities, our hopes, our fears, our true feelings, our desires. In fact, it's strongly encouraged not to bring any of that complexity into what is just two bodies having sex. Melinda Salmas, a researcher and author, she says when sex is reduced to an exchange of pleasures, 
the other person's personality becomes a burden. I'm not interested in anything about you. We're just here for sex. But sex is designed to point us back to our divine origins, that we crave intimacy, that we crave to be vulnerable yet loved, that we crave to let our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses show but still to be accepted and still to be desired. It also points us back to the idea not only to be known by someone but to be known by God because sin has severed our relationship with God. Do you know that sex, it comes from the Latin verb meaning to cut off or to sever? And our sexual impulses are driving us to be united, driving us to restore broken union, firstly with God and then with someone that we're willing to commit our whole lives to. We all wanna be pursued. We all want to be wanted, we want to be fully known, we want to be fully loved, we want to be naked and seen as beautiful and desirable, to be vulnerable and not rejected. But this is only found in the gospel. This is the first place you gotta look for, for this intimacy, for this acceptance, for this vulnerability is in the gospel. You know, a God who knows you fully, everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, has chosen you when you were at your very worst. He pursued you. He himself became naked and vulnerable on the cross. He gave himself to you completely and unconditionally so that you can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be accepted, loved, and cherished by God himself. It's our greatest need for belonging that we'll ever have in our lives. It can only be found through the gospel of Jesus. And sex is a profound reminder of this truth but also that we were created for more than just sexual encounters at random. Okay, the second uh, pillar in a, in, a, in a biblical framework of sexuality is understanding holistic integration. We need to know that sex is designed for the, for the whole body. It's, it's our bodies, it's our will, it's our mind, it's our soul, fully given. It's, it's intimacy at its absolute purest. I've kind of alluded to that throughout the morning. When we, you see, when we take this intimacy away from sex, all you're left with is technique and performance. I mean, how good are you at this thing? How impressive are you? How good do you look? Are you gonna be able to satisfy? What it's doing is producing increased anxiety, increased senses of, of, of negative self-worth, body image. There's so many books, manuals, studies designed to increase our sexual performance, but it's doing nothing to meet our deep needs and cravings to be loved, to belong, to be accepted, to be safe in our vulnerability. So many people say losing their virginity was just so disappointing because it was just about an experience and a technique. Nothing to do with love and vulnerability in which we flourish, and where sex finds its true purpose. So here's an excerpt from Pierce's Love Thy Body, brilliant book uh, that Luke and I both recommend. Common phrases for having sex indicate that it's the most you can do sexually. It is going all the way, or getting to home plate, or sealing the deal. That's why it belongs only in a relationship where you go all the way, on all other levels as well. When you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, and spiritually, you should become naked and vulnerable physically only when you're ready to become naked and vulnerable with your whole self. Okay, the third big pillar is that we've got to understand that our sexuality is tied to our transformation. You see, when we don't simply follow our sexual urges and desires, we're forced to think about them, examine them, reflect on them, and that's a good thing for us. I mean, even if you're not a parent, you can understand this. Parents don't let their kids do whatever they want. They don't let them just follow their urges and desires and what they want, because how they're gonna end up, they're gonna end up like a spoiled brat, just given everything that they want. I mean, they're not gonna be well-rounded, well-formed people, and we understand that. But somehow cultures force us to believe that that's, that's true for every aspect of life except your sexuality. There, you just do whatever you want and you're gonna be fine. No, no, when we just follow our desires, we're gonna end up like we would in every other circumstance. We're gonna be not well-rounded and deformed. But somehow we've been convinced that it won't work like that in this one area of life. 
We need a vision for our sexuality that, that forms and conforms us to how God created us to thrive and flourish and experience sex as the most wonderful thing that God created it to be. Okay, fourthly, it's a witness to the world. You've got to understand in the framework of a view of sexuality biblically that it's a witness to the world, that Christ-formed sexuality actually brings healing and restoration into the world, into relationships. It's a place of respect, not commodification and abuse. It's a place of vulnerability, of grace, of acceptance in a culture of performance, lies, and deceit. Do you know that there were three major practices that led to Christianity overturning and dominating Roman culture? The first one was the way Christians died and treated their enemies. It just impacted the Roman Empire so incredibly. The second one was radical financial generosity. Here was a group of people that were outrageously um, generous with their finances and it impacted the Roman Empire. The third one was faithfulness in their sexuality. It was so outrageously countercultural at the time that along with those two other things, it led to, the, to Christianity actually overturning and causing so much turmoil in the Roman Empire. So now as, as we look at Jesus and our sexual formation and, and we think about those four pillars, we're gonna face some radical pressures and struggles in our culture, temptations. I wanna speak to four of those. And the first one is pornography. Now remember, when I look at these temptations, I'm not primarily asking, you know, is this right or wrong? But for some of them, we could answer that. The big question I'm, I'm asking here is who, be, who am I becoming in the way that I embrace and use my sexuality? Who am I becoming? So statistics tell us that 90% of men are using porn and the numbers amongst women are increasing very rapidly. I know two weeks ago, Derek uh, sent me an article in News 24. I don't know if you guys saw it, you can Google it. It was two or three weeks ago. It, the title was this, South African Children's Porn Addiction Crisis. So here's some excerpts from the finding uh, by UNICEF's Bureau of Market Research. 35% of children are watching child pornography. 35% violent pornography. 65% watch porn between a man and a woman. I'm speaking about kids here, but if it's true for our kids, it's true for us as adults. And sometimes we think uh, the statistics in South Africa are skewed, but, but the main problem here is smartphones and tablets and access to data and Wi-Fi which is what we have in abundance. Most of the children's first exposure to pornography is actually accidental. Parents put on a movie, they get back to work, something pops up, and the kids click on it and, and boom. End up on a porn website. By the time children leave primary school, 90% of them have already been exposed to porn. Just think about that. When you're leaving high school, you've been watching porn for anything from five years to a decade of your life already. Can you imagine what that's doing to form someone, to shape someone's thinking and living and sense of worth? Radomir, she's got three decades of work in this field, says that most of the porn addicts she sees, this is South Africa, are in grades six and seven. Noting an example that during cricket matches, while kids are waiting to bat, they'll watch porn. And our kids have 24 seven access to porn. And I hope all of us are doing what we can to put mechanisms in place to protect our kids on, while they're on these smart devices. See, in the, in the absence of us discipling our kids, discipling ourselves, it's not all about kids, discipling each other, if we don't do that, we need to understand that our kids' view of sexuality is going to be, they're going to be discipled and are being discipled by pornography. That is their view of sexuality. That is their view of sex. And how, so how is it shaping us? Pornography. Well, it's impacting the story that we're living in. Nancy Pierce, uh, in a book again, she says, pornography tears apart what it means to be at to be integrated, treating the body as an object or instrument for one's own purposes. It's impacting our relationships, again from the article. Children who are addicted to porn struggle enormously in their relationships in the future. 
It's true for adults too. Married and unmarried. They have distorted ideas of sex and relationships and cannot maintain a loving relationship between two people. Our sexual tastes are impacted. People are less sexually and relationally satisfied because of constant exposure to pornography. The problem with porn is not that it shows too much of a person, but that it actually shows far too little. Porn is impacting our emotional well-being. Naomi Wolf describes students, uh, this is from the States at large universities, she says, it became clear that after a decade of having access to the internet, they were intimately familiar with porn, but intimacy and the hearts of the opposite sex were more of an elusive mystery than ever. It's impacting how we see ourselves and how we see other people made in God's image. I mean, what's porn doing to how women see themselves or how they're viewed by other people? Here's a quote from a study. Girls and young women are under a lot of pressure to give boys and men what they want, to become a real life embodiment of what the boys have watched in porn, adopting exaggerated roles and behaviors and providing their bodies as mere sex aids. Growing up in today's porn culture, girls can quickly learn that they are service stations for male gratification and pleasure. It's impacting our bodies and our behavior. I mean, there's firm data that shows that pornography is addictive leads to violence, it destroys relationships, it feeds sex trafficking and prostitution. Porn is literally rewiring our brains. It messes with our dopamine levels and it's the law of diminishing returns. In other words, you have to watch more and more hardcore porn to experience the same level of excitement that you did not long ago. And with these fluctuating dopamine levels, we have less empathy less understanding for people over time. People are increasingly objectified in our view. Sexuality is, is forming who we are. We have to acknowledge that, that porn is disforming us. It's impacting us negatively, emotionally, relationally, even physically. Okay, masturbation. The Bible doesn't speak about masturbation directly, but C.S. Lewis has, so let's, let's lean on him. I'm gonna get back to C.S. Lewis in a moment. But Augustine, the great theologian, he had a definition for sin that was this, love to turn in on itself. So he said, we are made to be people who love God and people, but we have turned that love in on ourselves, and what that produces is ruin. Masturbation is turning us in on ourselves and training us to continue to be people like that. So C.S. Lewis, imagine you're sitting with C.S. Lewis sharing a pipe. He did smoke a pipe, that old C.S. Eh? I'm not condoning that at any way. You're sitting with him, you know, you're chilling. You say, hey, C.S., what do you think about masturbation? And he writes you a letter. This is what he would write. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, sex, which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct in his own personality and that of another, and finally in children, even grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Amongst those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover, no demand is made on his um, unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back in on itself, but also the faculty of the imagination. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. And we all know that the link between pornography and masturbation is well established. Okay, let me talk about dating. Now, the huge challenge that we're gonna experience in our culture, the topic needs a lot of wisdom, again, not referred to directly in the scriptures, but I don't know if you know this, but most of human history, uh, marriage worked, they were arranged, arranged marriages. Then there was, there was courtship. 
that actually the word dating was only ever first recorded in written form as late as 1914. So this is not an old thing, dating. Now think about it, it's incredible. Courtship was all about bringing a man before the whole family to be evaluated, <laughs> you know, for their character and their worth and their ability to provide. Now that was an interview that would put fear in anyone. Dating changed everything about, about this. Relationships kind of got removed from the family. Now we, we go on the date. Started to revolve around fun and entertainment. You know, getting to know people in unrealistic settings and romantic relationships and exciting things that you're doing which aren't really true to life. Maybe only after a long period of dating do you actually really get to see someone for who they really are in real life situations. But often by then, the emotions have already run away. Relationships move away from character and friendship to fun and being seen, I'm dating so-and-so, or for some, even money. Now, if dating was a radical step down from courtship, disaster struck when dating apps hit the scene and, and the hookup culture just exploded. So people describe dating apps as like, be, it's like Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people. <laughs> I watched a YouTube clip and you know, someone, you know, as these guys do, I'll give you, you know, 50,000 if you kiss me right now. So I could never kiss you. We can sleep together for the 50,000, but I'm in a relationship, you know, kissing's out. But how is hookup culture forming us? Well, Mary Everstadt, she wrote a book, Adam and Eve After the Pull. And she's commenting on, on popular magazines that people read. And she said they are filled with, with a wildly contradictory mix of chatter about how wonderful it is that women are now all liberated for sexual fun and how mysteriously impossible it has become to find a good, steady, committed boyfriend at the same time. It's like as this increases, the other one just diminishes. We have to see it. It's forming us to hide our true selves in a moment. Actually, this hookup culture, it's training us to fail in long-term relationships. It's training us for unfaithfulness. You know, the implication is, I mean, no wonder, no wonder breakups are so painful when people are sleeping together. And what can happen is this pain is so tremendous because of the connection that's being made that people get cynical about relationships. And so, so they, they set up what psychologists call it this defensive detachment. I'm, I'm afraid of you, I'm afraid you're gonna hurt me, so I detach myself and I set up this defense detachment. But what happens is the stronger this defense attachment gets, the harder it is to actually form a healthy attachment when you find someone you love and wanna share the rest of your life with, you've been training yourself against that very thing that you most desire in a relationship. Even when young adults want to marry, they've got a harder time making these, these long-lasting commitments. Hookup culture, it's training us to abandon God's idea for sex, to abandon God's idea for our creative flourishing. So, so how has modern dating apps impacted your dating grid? I don't know if you've thought about this. If you're, if you're single, whatever stage of life, you've got a dating grid, how you think about dating, how you view dating, what you're looking for in someone you're dating. Well, culture's teaching us, firstly, are they hot? First question. You know, think about dating apps. You know, in the States, makeup sales are on the up and perfume sales are on the down. It's all about online, it's all about how you look, it's all about how you project yourself. It's not that much contact. Second question, can I have an exciting time with them? You know, is this gonna be fun? Then after, after hooking up, after sleeping with them, you know, you can think about, actually, do I wanna have a friendship with this person? I mean, would I actually wanna see them again? And then lastly, you ask yourself if the author goes, well, maybe I wanna spend my life with them. This is how culture is forming the dating grid of people's lives, of our lives. The way of Jesus is completely different. If you ask me what's the, great, the, the dating grid for the, in the way of Jesus, it's firstly you ask yourself, is this the kind of person I'd be willing to give sacrificial care to? Is this the kind of person that I would be willing to sacrifice for? Are we friends and do we resonate well in major areas of life? That's why often you'll find Christians 
getting caught up in relationships with those that aren't even Christ followers, but, but by the time the implications of what's happening in their life come to light, the connection is already so strong because we've, we've got this grid the wrong way. So, so are we friends and resonate well in major areas of life? Can we build a real united vision for our future? Can we build a future together? And then when all this is done, you decide whether or not you wanna to commit to them long-term with all of your body including consummating your marriage after the wedding. Do you have a grid for dating? Have you thought about what you're looking for and how you're thinking and how you're approaching dating and you know, what are the criteria? So much of, of who you're becoming, if you're single, if you're dating, is gonna be formed around this dating grid. More than maybe you imagine. Now remember, I'm not, ask, I'm not saying are dating apps right or wrong. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm asking the question, who am I becoming by the way I use and give myself to sexuality? Okay, last one here, cohabiting. It's becoming an increasing trend among, even amongst Christ followers. I think there's so much relational breakdown, so many marriages that are failing that the test drive is becoming such a big thing, you know, testing compatibility or, hey, we're already sleeping together, so what's the big deal? We may as well live together. Well, Jonathan Grant, he writes a book on divine sex, a compelling vision for Christian relationships in a hypersexualized age. He says cohabitation is like a subprime commitment. It's high risk, there's no collateral, no guarantees, and, most, and like most subprime commitments, they're designed to fail. Now, it's a really bad investment. He says it's astonishing how this trend is increasing, even though all the data clearly shows that it's completely counterproductive to what you actually want. Only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage, and it gets worse the longer you cohabit. There's an increased likelihood of divorce. For serial cohabitors, the statistics are even worse, and it leads to greater and greater dissatisfaction within marriage. Like I said, when, when we don't just follow our sexual desires, but instead give our sexuality to Christ, we're training ourselves for marital faithfulness. When we simply follow our sexual desires, you're gonna struggle and be radically surprised when you realize you can't just turn it off like a tap when you share a marriage vow. I'll let Tim Keller have the final say. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily, not by how much you wanna receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for this person? When someone says, I love you, but let's not ruin it by marriage, what they're saying is, I don't love you enough to close all my options just yet. So let me start pulling all of these threads together. We live in a sex-positive culture that's, that's telling us a very different story to the story of God and who we were truly created to be. And you add in with that these tremendous temptations. And as Christ followers, we need a robust view of sexuality if we're gonna make it. We need to understand that, that sex and our sexuality is an incredibly powerful and precious force in our lives. We need a robust view of our sexuality that, that doesn't have to do with fear and it doesn't have to do with just follow. We need to bring our sexuality to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you help to form my sexuality in how you created it to be and how you created me to flourish? It means we need to reorder our desires. We need to rely on the Spirit. We need to adjust our practices. We can't just rely on external habits. We need new hearts, new habits, and we need a new community around us that's living counterculturally so that we can find the encouragement and the strength that we need, because this is hard. This is hard, and I'll tell you why it's hard. Well, on an individual level, when you make choices to honor God in the area of your sexuality, it's, it's gonna be like suffering. It's not just an inconvenience, it's not just a matter of personal choice in our culture, it's gonna cost you, you're gonna suffer for choosing to follow and honor God in your sexuality. That's the culture 
the climate that we're living in. You might even see some of your friends or people you know in relationships and think, what's the big deal? It doesn't look, you know, that bad. But as Christ followers, being more like Jesus and honoring God with our lives is, is the most important and highest priority that we have in our lives. That's how we thrive and experience life to the full. And we're gonna need to be the countercultural community where people can live out the sexuality. Now you might be thinking as you're sitting here, Donnie, if you knew me, you don't know my story. There's no way back for me. Maybe you're sitting here and you just, there's so much shame and guilt. Maybe you overrun in temptation. You've got so many failures behind your, your name that you just feel like Christ cannot transform my sexuality, it's, it's gone. But before you lose any hope, I want you to remember, when you read in the Bible in the New Testament, the people are being converted to Christ. These are people who on a very, very regular basis, at least weekly, slept with temple prostitutes as an act of worship. And this was, these are not nice, good southern suburbs people that the Bible is talking about conversion. These are people with radical, deformed sexuality. God can handle your sexual failure. God can redeem, God can restore, God can rebuild, God can bring restoration and freedom into your life. Jesus knows how to make beautiful things out of what's broken. Sitting around you are Christ followers who have struggled, are struggling, have been forgiven, have been redeemed. We're all in need of God's grace. We're all in need of his mercy. We're all trusting him to transform us in ways that we, we didn't know if he ever would. Why don't you guys can make your way up onto the stage as I just wrap up. So guys, you don't need to refuse your desires, but don't offer your life to them. Don't give yourself and just follow your sexual desires. You can offer them to Jesus and ask him to form you more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into the person you were created for, more and more to experience the joy and power of sex as he intended it for you. Why don't you stand? I'm gonna pray. Then we'll, we'll wrap up with the final song. pray together. Father, you've, uh, you've been here the whole time. You know all of our lives. You've been there. You, you're in all of our lives. You see everything about us. God, as we stand here, we freshly recognize that. But we also recognize your grace and your mercy and your love for us is so extreme that you were willing to give up your own son, sacrifice him to renew and restore our lives. And so God, we can freshly and with confidence and with hope and without shame and guilt offer our lives to you afresh. Say, God, would you help me? We need your spirit at work in our hearts and our lives, God in a culture that is, that is singing a very, very different tune. I wanna pray for your grace and your power at work in, in us as we say yes to you, no to culture's view of sexuality and when the suffering and the difficulty and the ridicule comes, God, that you would speak your love and your honor into our lives because we know that when we seek to honor you, that we can experience your smile and your blessing and flourishing in our lives. God, we wanna do this because it's good for us and it brings you glory. Amen.